how ransomware gang Zeppelin came to get punctured by cybercrime karma, and with FTX's collapse, the cycle of cryptocurrency loss continues. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. This week, the US celebrates Thanksgiving. Well, here's something to be thankful for. Security researchers finding a workaround that has been helping victims of Zeppelin ransomware decrypt their files without having to pay a ransom. Filling us in is Matthew Schwartz, ISMG's Executive Editor for Data Breach Today in Europe. So Matt, how did Zeppelin come to get punctured by a bit of cybercrime karma? Well, about two years ago, Anna, two researchers at cybersecurity firm Unit 221B were reviewing a teardown of Zeppelin ransomware, which was then still pretty new. And they noticed there were a few flaws within the architecture of Zeppelin that would open an opportunity for recovery, they say. Specifically, the ransomware, when it hits a computer, generates an RSA 512 public key. And with enough computing power, the researchers were able to crack the key. That meant that every infected system, if correctly handled, could have its encrypted files get decrypted without having to pay a ransom by factoring the public key. And so Unit 221B shared this information with a small group of others, including law enforcement, to help them help victims. So can victims decrypt for free? So free from having to pay a ransom, yes. And the service has been getting offered via Unit 221B with the help of others, including hosting giant DigitalOcean, which donated a cluster of CPUs to handle the factoring. Now, the researchers also built a live CD version of Linux. The victims can run on an infected system to factor the key. But this isn't exactly free. So Lance James, who's the CEO of Unit 221B, and one of the two researchers who identified this workaround, says next week they're going to release the code, the live CD, and scripts victims can use to unlock Zeppelin-locked files via DigitalOcean. Although victims could also pick a different approach. They could, for example, use GPUs via Amazon Web Service instances. And there's at least one researcher who's got experience with this that they can put victims in touch with. So James tells me that this won't be free since factoring is never free. It was donated before by DigitalOcean and somebody has to pay for these CPUs or GPUs. So from now on, anyone who wants to make use of this workaround James says it's going to be about $250 to crack a key on each individual system. And the script they've developed will automatically shut down the machines correctly to save as much cost as possible. Once it's done, they don't need the CPUs, they'll shut it down. So as James told me, $250, not free, but it's a good site cheaper than having to pay a ransom. And what have these lost profits meant for Zeppelin? Well, anything that takes a bite out of cybercrime is to be celebrated. And Zeppelin's operators may have been wondering why the ransomware wasn't as lucrative as they might have hoped. So at least yet, we don't have any insight into what was happening inside the group or if it was aware. Maybe one of the members of the group will leak their internal chat logs like we saw with Conti, and we can all celebrate their collective dissatisfaction. But the group has remained active, despite the apparent setback of not getting as much ransoms as it should have. 
at least until earlier this year. In August, the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, CISA, noted that from 2019 through at least June of this year, attackers had been using Zeppelin to target a wide range of businesses and critical infrastructure organizations. Think defense contractors, educational institutions, manufacturers, tech firms, and especially organizations in the healthcare and medical industries. The ransoms being demanded by Zeppelin wielding attackers ranged from several thousand dollars to more than a million dollars. Matt, how common is it for researchers to quietly find workarounds for ransomware? It happens. We've seen it before with GANCRAB, DarkSide, Black Matter, and many more. Encryption is difficult, and security researchers are often very smart. They're constantly looking to see if criminals have screwed up something in their coding or their implementation. But there's an underlying challenge, which is that if researchers find these flaws and publicize them, attackers are going to quickly fix them. Cybercrime is a business. They want to maximize their profits. So what you see is the likes of this Zeppelin workaround being circulated on the QT. So if there's one takeaway I have for any organization that might fall victim to ransomware, it's this. Always, always reach out to ransomware response firms. An initial consultation should always be free. Also reach out to law enforcement, even if you don't end up sharing evidence with them. But as with response firms, they may also know of available workarounds and can put you in touch with the people who can make it happen. Because of the risk of attackers fixing their mistakes, multiple get out of jail cards for free that might be in existence today are probably still not public knowledge. Help could be just a phone call away. Great insight and advice as always. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks, Anna. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. After the news of the collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, managing editor for security and technology, recalls his own cryptocurrency adventure and learnings laced with a strong security message. A cryptocurrency exchange called FTX collapsed recently and billions of dollars are missing. This is by far not the first time an exchange has fallen. After the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange, I received a small postcard from Japan. The sender was Mt. Gox. A decade ago, I bought a Bitcoin for $12. I was intrigued. The blockchain and the Bitcoin's shadowy architect, Satoshi Nakamoto, were fascinating. It felt mysterious, somewhat rebellious, and was a technological marvel. I bought more. I was interested in how trading worked. At that time, Mt. Gox was the biggest cryptocurrency exchange around. It was in Tokyo. It felt wild and exciting, buying private keys for cash wired to Japan, which are then sent by open source software. At one time, I had 300 bitcoins. I had no expectation of making money, and the fact that I did was purely by accident. I just wanted to learn how Bitcoin worked. The best way to do that was by trading and seeing how confirmations worked and experimenting. In 2013, the value shot up. My wife and I were expecting. Bitcoin continued to rise and I realized, whoa, people are actually buying this stuff. This is crazy. But anyone who seriously looked at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency knows it's impractical and difficult to secure. As a transactional system, Bitcoin is slow. And where do you store it? Hold it on your computer? What if the hard drive crashes? What if you forget your password or get hacked? Should you just hold it on an exchange? Well, that's where my Bitcoins were in February 2014. 
on Mount Gox. Then, Mount Gox crashed and burned. A security flaw allowed hackers over three years to slowly steal bitcoins. 850,000 of them, in fact, worth $460 million. It was the biggest bank robbery ever. Mt. Gox entered administration. I had 13 bitcoins in Mt. Gox at the time, worth about $540 each. It was pure profit. A week before, I'd actually planned on selling the bitcoins for cash. We needed baby things and a clothes dryer. Then Gox collapsed. I felt dumb. I wasn't hurt as bad as others, but the money would have helped. A month later, Mt. Gox found 200,000 missing bitcoins in a cold wallet. There was hope. Over the years, the value of those bitcoins rose tremendously. The bankruptcy case became one of the strangest ever, and one in which the remaining assets of a collapsed business actually increased in value. After many years, Japan's courts worked out an unprecedented and complicated deal. Creditors would get cash, bitcoin, or a mix of both. I'll get a couple of bitcoins and some cash. It's kind of like finding a lottery ticket from years ago in the couch cushions. Our baby's now nine years old, and we had another one as well. Instead of baby things to buy, now there are kid things. Will I sell both of the bitcoins? Well, maybe just one. But the point of my tale is that cryptocurrency overall is impractical, risky, and as FTX shows, the cycle of steep loss continues. And unlike the unconventional story of Mt. Gox, there may be no reimbursement for those who lost funds ever. Be careful. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, industry insight from our business editor, Michael Novenson, who reports that security vendor ExtraHop secures ex-Checkpoint executive Chris Scanlon as president. Great to see you, Michael. Michael, you've written this week that ExtraHop has snagged high-profile executive Chris Scanlon to help the network security provider reach $500 million in annual recurring revenue. Talk to us more about this move and Chris Scanlon's background. Absolutely, and thank you for having me on, Anna. So Chris Scanlon's pretty well known in the security world, given his resume and his history. He's held high-level sales positions at Checkpoint Security, at Silence, as well as at Optiv. And he's been kind of a sales mastermind, some in North America, but also some globally, in terms of really maturing organizations. And that's why he was brought in here at ExtraHop, that they're looking to take that next leap. They were acquired early last year by a pair of private equity firms, Bain, Bain as well as Crosspoint Capital, for $900 million. And they're really looking to have the company expand and scale before they exit the business, presumably in the next two to four years or so. So Bain had Bain and Crossbutt and first brought in Patrick Dennis earlier this year to be their CEO. He was uh, had spent a number of years at EMC and Oracle, so certainly some large organizations. And then Patrick, along with the private equity ownership, selected Chris to come in and really be his right-hand man as the president and the chief commercial officer, where he's really been tasked with revamping everything around go-to-market. So in the case of ExtraHop, they had $140 million of annual recurring revenue last year and thinking about how do we get to that $500 million figure before Bain and Crosspoint exit the company like couple of years. So that's really about maturing the company, bringing in some experienced leadership, creating some systems and processes around marketing, brand awareness, growing the company outside of North America. They've been very North American centric, and then also reforming the channel programs so that they're leveraging MSPs, MSSPs, value-added resellers, etc., more than they are today. Because just as once you get to a certain size, it's really impossible to serve through a direct sales force. So Maybe Silence is the cleanest example, but maybe how to get them scaled the same way that he helps scale Silence. And so he's trying to help them think on that bigger picture. 
And Michael, recently we've been talking more about layoffs in the tech world than hires, unfortunately. What is Extra Hop's thinking here as we go into tougher economic times? It's a fair question. And there is coverage out of some of the business journals in the Seattle, Washington area where they're based that they did make some headcount reductions last month. What Extra Hop emphasized and their responses is that their overall headcount has expanded by 30%. So it was more uh, maybe of a refinement moving away from less profitable market segments or some less profitable market areas and really trying to figure out where they want to expand. So it doesn't sound like there's many further cuts on the horizon, probably are going to be some new executive hires. But some of this is going to be thinking about, especially in the sales world, like how much work do we want our direct sales force doing? How much of this can we leverage MSPs, MSSPs for? So maybe then if you're leveraging channel partners more, that there's less of a need for folks on the direct sales force side. So it sounds like from my conversations with Chris that there will continue to be gradual headcount growth, nothing dramatic, given the economic times and the need for responsible growth and uh, having a path to profitability. But it does look like going forward, they're looking at some gradual headcount expansion, largely focused on some marketing functions, some education functions, as well as some channel functions to make sure that they can support a larger book of business. Very good. Well, Michael, as ever, thanks so much for this insight. You're very welcome. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.